welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Dominic Tierney, professor of political science at Swarthmore College. Dominic, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. You and a co-author published an important article a couple of years ago on negativity bias in international relations. And for me personally, it delves into one of my favorite subfields of international relations that explores how human psychology impacts state relations and, and foreign policy generally. So Dominic, uh, negativity bias is a term that refers to a number of psychological tendencies. Talk about some of the features of human psychology uh, and how these biases manifest. Sure. Uh, so the negativity bias is uh, a, a virtual law of psychology. Um, it's an absolute core principle of how the human brain operates. And the basis of it is that bad is stronger than good. So in other words, the mind tends to react to negative things more quickly, uh, more powerfully than to equivalent positive things. And we see this in uh, a lot of different domains from uh, emotion to memory and everything in between. So I'll just give you a couple examples. Uh, you may recognize these uh, in your own lives um, since we're all subject to negativity bias or most of us anyway. So for instance, in relationships, bad things tend to have worse effects on relationships than equivalent good things. So uh, someone saying a mean thing in a relationship does more damage than you know buying flowers or doing something nice. Um, in fact, there's actually a, a book on how to have a successful marriage that says that you need a five to one ratio of positive to negative uh, events in a marriage to have a successful marriage, precisely because the bad things loom so large and are uh, so dominant. But lots of other examples as well, like um, you know, a good reputation is is hard to gain; it's very easy to lose. A bad reputation is very easy to gain and hard to lose. Um, we all know that um, uh, if you compete at something, losing hurts twice as bad as winning feels good. So if you ever play tennis or something, you probably appreciate that. Um, you see it in the media where uh, if it bleeds, it leads. And uh, the media is famously focused on negative events. Um, think about it in terms of uh, trauma. So if someone has a traumatic experience, like they're bitten by a dog or something, this can actually reverberate through their whole life. but there's no positive equivalent to trauma. There's no word that means the positive version of trauma. So lots of examples of negativity bias. And, and it seems to be that this is hardwired into the human brain through human evolution. Um, animals also have negativity bias. Um, you know, the, the mouse just runs away at the first sign of danger. And the reason is kind of obvious. Um, danger can kill an animal. So it's better to err on the side of caution. Now, there is one exception to this rather grim parade. There is one example where good is stronger than bad. So drum roll here. You're probably excited to hear what it is. Well, the exception is when we judge ourselves. So um, when we think about our own capabilities, our own life chances, how good looking we are, how smart we are, we actually have positive illusions. Um, so for instance, if you ask people, are you above average at driving? You find that over 80% of people think they're above average at driving. Um, over 90% of college professors say their work is above average, right? This cannot be logically right, but people think that they're better than they, they really are. 
A little bit of variation there. So men are more overconfident than women. Perhaps there's no surprise there. Um, Americans, a little bit of cultural variation. Americans are more overconfident than East Asians. But there's a baseline element of overconfidence. So if you sort of combine all this, the basic story of human psychology then is that there is a positive bias when we view ourselves. And there is a negative bias when we view the outside world. Okay, so let's apply this to international relations. How does this apply and operate uh, at that level? So I think there's lots of ways that you can, you know, uh, plug this into IR. After all, this is a, a really broad and, and very powerful tendency. Um, so let me just give you sort of briefly three illustrations of how it can uh, connect to IR, and then maybe we can talk more about the specifics if you like. But these three illustrations, you can think of almost like uh, they're in chronological order as, a, as a, a bad thing or a threat sort of first emerges and then is experienced and then eventually is remembered as it kind of passes into history. So the first example is uh, threat sensitivity. So countries, just to guess like the, the mouse, right, or like humans, are extremely sensitive to threat. Um, and so there's this strong tendency to assume the worst, um, to uh, believe that uh, enemies are out to get you. Um, to uh, it's very very difficult to to gain trust in adversaries, and it's lost very very quickly. So threat inv inflation is very very pervasive. I mean, just think about you know Iraq and the supposed weapons of mass destruction. Um, many examples of that. Uh, the second illustration of negativity bias in global politics is actually when we actually experience a negative event. And this is loss aversion. So we basically hate the idea of losing. Um, and we are willing to gamble to, uh, to avoid losing. Um, this is how, by the way, casinos make money. If you lose 20 bucks, you want to gamble to get back to even. Um, but you also see this in international relations where countries that start losing a war will uh, escalate the war. Uh, they hate cutting the losses. Uh, instead, they just escalate in the hope of getting back to, to even. Um, there's a great line by a 19th century British politician who said, the commonest error in politics is sticking to the carcasses of dead policies. And that really captures this, this, this loss aversion. And then the third example I just want to mention is uh, what we call failure salience, um, which basically means that uh, countries' leaders tend to remember and learn more from past failures than successes. So, you know, leaders often draw these sort of parallels to history, and and you know, these, the speeches of leaders are often sprinkled with these historical references, and they're nearly always um, sort of things that happened in the past that we should avoid repeating, like no more Vietnams or no more Munichs. Uh, no more appeasement like with Hitler, or no more Iraq wars. Um, so nearly always, it's that the, the bad experience sort of just emblazons itself in our memory and becomes the basis of, of learning. Uh, we'll come back to those three manifestations in a little bit, but uh, what about the argument that this is an appropriate bias? You know, it's a dangerous world out there, and it's better to over-perceive -per threats than to under-perceive them. Yeah, sure. So, you know, you could argue that these are... You know, these are rational because, you know, the, the got to err on the side of caution. You know, it's, it's, for instance, if you have a fire alarm, maybe it makes sense to set that fire alarm to kind of be too sensitive 
right? Because it would be better to have a few false alarms than to risk a fire, right? So maybe it's, it's, it's smart that our brain is sort of too sensitive to threat. But actually, I'm not so sure. Um, and uh, it does seem that we uh, the, evolved these tendencies over hundreds of thousands of years because they were useful in our you know, hunter-gatherer past, right? When Homo sapiens evolved. That does not mean that these uh, sensitivities are calibrated appropriately for the modern world of international relations, right? Just think about how different the world was where we developed these, you know, these psychological tendencies, you know, small communities in Africa, you know, uh, versus the world of IR. Um, completely different types of threats, completely different, um, you know, risk assessment. And so when you look at the world, it does seem to be the case that this inflating of threats and these other dynamics is not rational. In fact, it's incredibly dangerous and has drawn the United States and other countries into all kinds of wars, um, very, very costly wars that could have been avoided. And what does your thesis say about other theoretical paradigms in international relations. Realism, for example, emphasizes how you know, the anarchic nature of international systems can induce perverse incentives towards conflict. And then you know, constructivism, at least of the unbounded kind, suggests that uh, you know, our international system reflects certain historical and culturally contingent characteristics and it's malleable to one extent or another, but your theory emphasizes human psychology, which is distinct from both of these, uh, partly because it can't be changed. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, well, it, the theory, you know, the, this, the, the power of the negativity bias is, is broadly consistent with realism in, in a number of ways. It helps explain why cooperation is quite difficult, why states tend to uh, fear each other, um, but it's it is also distinct from you know mainstream realist theory, which focuses on the anarchic system and how the absence of a world government. I don't want to get too much into realist you know, theory minutiae, but the absence of a world government means the states are uh, sort of out for themselves and have to look after their own interests. And and so realists, a lot of realists don't put a lot of weight on uh, psychology, um, but actually it does seem that it provides the underpinning for at least some sort of realist dynamics that we've observed in history. Uh, for constructivism, it, it is a bit of a challenge because constructivism emphasizes how, you know, constructed ideas and norms and identities shape things and how any kind of world could be possible just based on, you know, whatever norms emerged. And these sort of psychological dynamics are quite deeply rooted and it would be hard to just ignore them or overcome them. So, it would be tough to construct a world in which, you know, somehow we we all focused on the positive over the negative, right? It, that it'd be hard to imagine how that would that would happen. I mean, I don't want to imply that these dynamics are extremely rigid and, and pushing, you know, actors in very very simplistic ways. The human brain is so much more complex than that, and and it does adapt to the subtleties of different scenarios. But we are sort of channeled in certain directions with certain predispositions and. And I think that's it's a little different from where realism and constructivism tend to come from. Uh, I want to ask further about this issue of while on the one hand, we humans and states tend to perceive, uh, overperceive the negative, we also are kind of dismissive of negative expectations that might be appropriate when we're evaluating our own ability to accomplish this, that, or the other thing. 
So the way that presumably manifests in international relations or U.S. foreign policy is that we identify a problem and apply, say, military force or some measure of coercion or tension to it in, in a hope to resolve it. And um, the problem itself probably is inflated in importance and in, its, in the, the way in which it actually threatens U.S. security. And the solution is very likely to fail. Uh, and that evidence is before policymakers, I think, all the time, but instead they're overconfident. Talk about some of the examples that we find and, and how this actually uh, works. Yeah, sure. So uh, I mentioned earlier that the, the, the general pattern is that we sort of uh, see ourselves with these positive illusions. We're overconfident in our abilities. We think we are smarter and better than we really are. Um, but we are very negative in how we view the outside world. Um, and both of these two separate dynamics seem to have uh, evolved. Um, because they can separately help us, at least to an extent. Um, so for instance, if you are overconfident in your abilities, then you might strive harder in life and it can actually help you survive and thrive. If you fixate on any danger that emerges, then that obviously helps you ward off peril, right? So they're separately quite useful. Um, they're not actually very consistent logically. Like if the world is so terrifying, why are you so confident in your ability to, to maneuver it? But the human brain doesn't worry about consistency. These things are separately useful. So when it comes to IR, the pattern that you see time and time again is that leaders obsess over peril, but at the same time are extremely confident about their capacity to overcome that. So, you know, the uh, run up to World War One, you see all the various actors in, you know, July 1914, you know, terrified over what the other side is, is aiming to do. And the Austrians are worried about the Russians and the Russians are worried about the Germans and the French are worried about the Germans and, and so on. But at the same time, all sides were wildly overconfident about victory. When the war began, they all thought they would win the war in 1914. Um, it, almost, you know, they thought they would win in a few weeks. Um, so Russians who said it might take six months to conquer Germany were considered defeatist because it wasn't confident enough. And obviously that's not how the war turned out for, for Russia. Or to take an example more recently, think about the US with Iraq. So in 2003, you see this exact kind of perfect example of this combination. So the Bush administration is absolutely terrified about the threat posed by Iraq. It's, you know, weapons of mass destruction and, and this alliance between terrorists and tyrants, even though Saddam had very few connections to Al-Qaeda, certainly wasn't responsible for 9-11. But people were talking about, you know, smoking gun will be a mushroom cloud and these hugely exaggerated fears of Saddam combined with extraordinary confidence about how a war would go and uh, the consequences in the region, um, especially in terms of the ease of stabilizing Iraq, which was assumed to just be a, a cakewalk, right? That everyone would just sort of be so delighted that we'd overthrown Saddam, that they would just come right out and sort of shake the American liberator's hands. And then we could go home within a few months. And also once Iraq became a democracy, you would see this sort of domino effect of democracy in the region, and then Iran would become a democracy, and then all of America's problems would be solved by seizing the sword. So that combination of exaggerated threat and exaggerated confidence, extraordinarily dangerous. I feel like I see your theory 
happening all over the place in uh, our contemporary foreign policy, and even specifically since the Biden administration has has come into office. So, for example, on Iran, uh, the administration is quite hesitant to re-enter the JCPOA. They're kind of imposing a set of onerous preconditions on Iran, and you know, you mentioned in your paper about how adversaries will have to go through quite a bit of uh, reassuring and signaling that they're prepared to accommodate um, before we accept it. And uh, that seems to be the case there. Uh, do, you, do you think that applies? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, if you, if you look at US, the US stance towards Iran, um, you know, we've seen Iran as sort of a mortal enemy since the, the revolution. And I think that that mindset has has got the United States into into huge trouble. Um, I mean, one of the ironies of, of all of this is that um, the United States keeps inadvertently helping Iran. Um, you know, it, it it toppled the Taliban that helped Iran. It toppled Saddam Hussein that helped Iran. Went to war against ISIS that's also helped Iran. You know, even pulling out of the nuclear deal arguably has helped Iran by allowing Iran to sort of a rare occasion sort of seize the moral high ground. So these exaggerated threat perceptions of Iran and other countries combined with overconfidence has actually led to policies over the years that probably have strategically aided Iran. Um, but you certainly see these these exaggerated fears. You know, Iran, I'm not saying Iran is a good actor and, and you know, it, it has at times of course, helped, you know, militant groups. It has helped carry out attacks, for example, against American troops in, in Iraq. But it's it's not the only power which has aided, you know, militant actors. So lots of other examples, you know, Pakistan, for instance, even the Saudis um, have inadvertently or advertently supported different radical actors. So Iran is, is far from being alone in that. Um, America's hardline policies have not really ultimately aided American security. The one time where the U.S. did help push back Iran was actually the nuclear deal, which was relatively uh, successful. Um, and of course, a key thing with all of this is that it's not just the United States which exhibits these various biases, right? Our adversary has exactly the same psychological biases, and we need to anticipate that. So the Iranians look outward. And they're also highly sensitive to threat. They also don't trust the United States. Um, and so, you know, if the U.S. signs and then pulls out of the Iran nuclear deal, just think about how that looks from the Iranian point of view, right? They themselves have a bias to, you know, erring on the negative. So for them, especially the hardliners, this is just an absolute demonstration you can never trust America, right? Um, so we need to anticipate that and be much more careful before doing things like tearing up deals. They could also be overconfident about, you know, using force, you know, uh, using their militias to fire rockets at American bases and these kind of things. So uh, we have to anticipate that we will exhibit those biases. The other side will exhibit the biases. And the combination could get us into a war with Iran, you know, even with an administration you would think would be uh, averse to that. What about Afghanistan? The Biden administration seems to be pushing a delayed withdrawal uh, and continued negotiations, and they're emphasizing things about conditions on the ground and so forth. Uh, I see loss aversion uh, uh, cropping up here. A few uh, weeks ago, I think, in the New York Times, it was reported that uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, 
uh, emphasized that we need to stay in Afghanistan because of, quote, all the blood and treasure spent there. Uh, talk about this sunk cost fallacy and how it seems to be operating. So the, the sunk cost fallacy is, is closely related to um, loss aversion. And it basically says that we, we kind of fixate on past investments that we can't get back. Um, and so you see this in a lot of different domains. You know, if you buy a non-refundable movie ticket, um, and then you look out the window and it's kind of pouring with rain. You don't want to go to the movie theater, but you think, oh, I spent all this money. I've got to go. Well, the money's gone. And the only question is, are you going to enjoy the next few hours at the movie theater? And if not, don't go to the movie theater. So the, the, the investment should be irrelevant, but it sort of hangs over our, our thinking. And of course, in war, um, that's even more prevalent because the investment of, of lives is ex, you know extraordinarily profound loss that the, the the country has endured, you know, even Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address talks about from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause. These words are literally chiseled into the Lincoln Memorial, and they are beautiful words. And in a in a conflict like the Civil War, perhaps that kind of commitment was appropriate, but that logic can lead to total catastrophe, right? Because what happens is you look at you know, these past deaths and you take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their lives. So even more soldiers ascend into the battle, even more people die, there's even a greater investment. And that doesn't of course bring anyone back to life, it just leads to more graves. So the Vietnam War I think is a, a great illustration of how uh, as America's investment grew in terms of casualties, it became harder and harder and harder to get out of the war. We were too invested to quit. And so even when we began negotiations in 68, it took five years before the United States left. And it's hard to see that anything was really gained in that extended um, exit. So in Afghanistan, uh, yes, you can see loss aversion playing out. It's, it's, it's proven extremely difficult um, for the United States to to withdraw, and I think part of that is is that no president wants to be the president who you know lost Afghanistan. No one wants to be the president who sees the Taliban, you know, pictures of the Taliban, you're know, storming Kabul, people, you know, getting onto helicopters and being rescued, and the kind of scenes you saw in Saigon in 1975. So the the aversion to that is is extremely strong. Um, that, of course, in my view, doesn't mean that the United States just needs to you know up and leave immediately right there needs to be a, 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 a an attempt to sort of craft an exit strategy that you know balances um, protecting american interests with avoiding just being stuck in this country forever if we were to properly protect american interests in that uh in that process what would that look like it seems to me what we really need to do is 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 get out of a war that we lost a long time ago and and the loss aversion would suggest that staying around and those kinds of justifications for changing conditions, which we apparently cannot do, uh, will just lead to further losses. Well, I think what we do in Afghanistan today is an extraordinarily difficult challenge, right? Um, it's, it, we're kind of in a worst case scenario. It's a failing war, it's getting worse. What do you do? How, how do you get out of such a conflict um, in a way that at least minimizes the damage a little bit um, without getting stuck there forever. This is a horrendous problem. Um, uh, before I answer what we should do, it, the, one of the lessons here is we should have negotiated a deal with the Taliban 
nearly 20 years ago. Uh, we now know that in 2002, 2003, the Taliban actually reached out and, and were willing to negotiate some sort of agreement because they felt the war had been lost. And we held all the cards. And the Bush administration at the time was so fixated on this good versus evil uh, view of the war, was so sort of crusading and missionary, and it's just World War II all over again. We didn't even consider that. So the real lesson there is you know, negotiate a pragmatic deal when you have the cards, and therefore we wouldn't be in this mess. However, we're in this mess now. So the question is, what do we do? And I think there's, there is a, an opinion that says, you know, we just got to stay here indefinitely, right? There's another view that says, uh, just basically leave. And the war has failed and just leave. And what I would say is, uh, I, I sort of offer a middle opinion, which is to say that we have to make a very difficult calculation. And part of that, I think, is uh, not fixating so much on the number of troops. So the entire debate about Afghanistan seems to revolve around, you know, these 2,000 American troops who are there, and, and do we pull out the 2,000 troops? But they are just one piece of a much broader commitment. Um, for instance, there are CIA assets in Afghanistan. Um, even if those troops left, we'll probably still have some forces that will protect the embassy. Most importantly, the United States and allies basically bankroll the Afghan government to the tune of billions of dollars. And that aid is actually much, much more important in, in Kabul's capacity to keep going than these 2,000 soldiers who, you know, at this point, you know, it's almost like people talk about them like the, the Spartans at Thermopylae, right? That they're holding back the entire Taliban. No, they're not, right? Um, so actually, uh, there are these other pieces that are, that are more significant. And so what I would say is, yes, we shouldn't stay forever um, or even you know, keep troops there for, for the long term. However, if, if it were to be the case that you know, a modest commitment of, say, foreign aid for a, a period of time while drawing down the troops over a period of months would give the regime a reasonable chance of, of surviving or help the negotiations, then at this point, that might be uh, a worthwhile sort of transaction. Um, but let's be honest, we're dealing with uh, a range of horrendously difficult choices. Uh, there's no victory. Any kind of victory was lost a long time ago. And we do need to sort of wind this conflict down. I wonder how your analysis on negativity bias applies to China. Um, the way I kind of uh, evaluate a lot of the discourse coming out of the D.C. foreign policy establishment about China, you know, it's a lot of consternation, a lot of hand-wringing, uh, some identifications of some specific problems and uh, argue, arguably you could call them security threats uh, to do with technological innovation and, and this kind of thing. But I think a lot of it is picking at old uh, problems that are certainly not new and certainly not more problematic now than they used to be, and calling them threats and kind of inflating this whole problem. And what that tends to do is crowd out those areas where China and the United States might have overlapping interests, where we can cooperate or uh, what have you. And you have this kind of rising power, uh, established dominant power dynamic. Uh, how does negativity bias, uh, uh, how is it informing our approach to China? Well, I, I think it's a great illustration of negativity bias and, and, and sensitivity to threat in particular. So there's just been an extraordinary shift in um, how DC has thought about China, I would say, in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, it's sort of like a, a, a magnet has come down and just picked up almost everybody and moved them over to the, the China hawk position. Um, you know, with some differences, you know, Elizabeth Warren talking about genocide versus, you know, kind of Trumpians talking more in a kind of civilization all the way about China, um, like Steve Bannon, 
um, versus kind of your more traditional, you know, neoconservative type hawk voices. But pretty much everybody in DC is 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 somewhere there. The the you know who are the China doves now? So uh, this is a, a very significant shift, and um, it does suggest that this that this bias is at work, which is to say that a- anything China does is likely to be um, exaggerated, and we are likely to fixate on it. And um, one way to think about it is to say, what would China have to do to um, sort of reduce these worries, right? What would China have to do where where DC would turn around and say, all right, okay, we can can sort of step back from this. The answer is there's virtually nothing that China could do um, that would significantly change this paradigm. The mere fact that it is, um, you know, ideologically different and, and admittedly is moving in a more authoritarian direction, um, and of course is growing in power, is almost enough. Um, and, and so it's hard to see how, you know, even if it made concessions on the South China Sea or something, that this would really significantly shift the paradigm. After all, there were times in the Cold War where the Soviets also made what they considered conciliatory gestures and the US just brushed it aside. Right? Even when Gorbachev was you know, winding down the Cold War, the CIA was issuing reports saying, um, he's, this doesn't mean anything. They'll revert to their old ways very quickly. So it's very, very difficult for to sort of unwind this kind of antagonism when it develops. So you know, all of these documents that are coming out of the DC community, you know, national security strategies, etc., talking about you know a major you know conventional threat to the United States or talking about a, a war in the South China Sea and naval battles, a realistic possibility, I think, are enormously exaggerated. The U.S. and China are very likely to compete in many different domains around the world, from you know 5G to e- even potentially getting involved in proxy conflicts and things like that. But the idea there's going to be some big battle, some big showdown battle, justifying all of this new technology we're pouring into the military, I think is uh, hugely exaggerated, and of course serves different interests in the in the what you might term the military industrial complex. Now, one caveat to this though is, as I noted with Iran. China is also subject to the same set of biases. Uh, They also look outward and see everything the United States does um, through the lens of threat sensitivity. They're very fearful about moves the US makes, um, and they will fixate on them. They will assume the worst about them. Um, and they're also potentially overconfident about their own capacity. We saw in the, the recent sort of border skirmishes with um, India, right? It's hard to understand what, what would China gain from that kind of, you know, border, small scale border clashes that occurred. Well, maybe it's this combination of, you know, fear of India, overconfidence about, you know, just some sort of saber rattling and, and, and the benefits of that. So we, that would mean that you could get a, a war because China might overreach, right? The US is not the only country that could overreach. But it also means that we need to be extremely worried about that sort of combination of threat sensitivity on both sides. Um, and overconfidence on both sides. Another question about failure salience. Um, I think the uh, the Obama administration's withdrawal from Iraq is often uh, pinged as uh, being the causal mechanism for the subsequent rise of ISIS. And uh, the the lesson apparently has been learned that um, you know if we pull back anywhere uh, in the fight against terrorism. Uh, that vacuum is likely to produce that phenomenon again or something comparable. Um, uh, what do you think about this? Um, 
So you're absolutely right that Iraq is just an incredible source of learning and memory. Um, the basic rule seems to be that we learn much more from negative events than positive events. And a colliery to that is that we tend to learn more from recent events. Um, as opposed to sort of more distant events. So the, the event that really jumps out is the last big failure. Um, and that can sort of just blot out the sun in terms of learning. So right now, what is that? Well, it is Iraq and maybe Afghanistan as well. Um, so, you know, we don't learn really even from Vietnam, sort of forgotten about that and Munich and, and things like that. It's really Iraq and Afghanistan that loom incredibly large. Of course, the, the, the battle that is now happening, you kind of might call it the war over the Iraq war, is what exactly is the lesson of Iraq? And what you see is a kind of dueling set of lessons. So you're absolutely right that um, you know, one of them is, is, is to say, well, we left Iraq too soon, and that helped the rise of ISIS, and Obama maybe also lost Iraq. Well, one thing I would say in regard to that is, is that kind of absurdly narrow take on the Iraq war. I mean, Obama inherited an exit plan from the Bush administration, right? That called for a total withdrawal by 2011. Um, and, uh, you know, people say, well, if there'd been a small successor force, this is what you often hear in Iraq, we could have stopped the rise of ISIS. And I sort of think, well, wait a second, we couldn't really control the politics of Iraq when we had 150,000 troops in Iraq. How exactly were a couple of thousand American troops and a successor force supposed to have stopped the emergence of ISIS, which by the way was in neighboring Syria at the time and then swept into Northern Iraq. So could a successor force have done a few things? Yeah, sure, maybe. But stop the, the emergence of ISIS, no way. So the, the danger in terms of learning, because you might sort of think, great, we should focus on Iraq. It was a disaster. So that should be the sort of the centerpiece of our thinking about foreign policy. But here's the danger. We don't sort of think holistically about the Iraq war and um, why the US ever got into Iraq and, and what kind of mindset and, and systems existed that, that lead to these just recurrent failures and why a country with such power and such wealth keeps getting into these failed wars time and time again. We tend to avoid that in favor of really narrow and specific lessons. So for instance, Obama, who of course was hugely focused on Iraq um, and really in some ways came to the presidency because of Iraq. That's how he outmaneuvered Hillary in the primary. It's how he beat John McCain in part in the, the general. Why did Obama end up launching a war or joining a war in Libya in 2011? That sort of turned into another failed war like Iraq. Well, the answer is that he learned from the Iraq war, but he learned in this very narrow way. The lesson he took was, let's not do any nation building, right? So. Libya comes along in 2011, and uh, Obama's not really enthusiastic about it. To some extent, the Europeans sort of push, nudge him into the war. But what Obama thinks is, okay, we'll join the war efforts, um, and we'll even help achieve regime change, but we'll just make sure that American troops are not involved with nation building. And therefore, we, we avoid another Iraq. Okay, and the Libyan war was designed to be the opposite of the Iraq war. So no American troops and nation building. We get UN support. We get Arab League support. All the things Bush didn't do in Iraq, we'll do this time. And then what is the consequence? Almost the exact same outcome as the Iraq war, a failed state, 
um, dueling militias, chaos and anarchy. Obama eventually said that failing to plan for that was his worst mistake as president. So while he did try to learn from Iraq, he missed one of the key points, which is that there is no point in toppling an enemy regime if the consequence is just going to be chaos and instability. So that the learning from Iraq is so narrow that the U.S. is still making many of the same mistakes. One of the tricky things about international relations work that tries to reach for some insights from human psychology is that the um, how do we resolve this, how do we improve this problem is often just, okay, we need to be aware of our biases. And for some reason, that often seems like an unsatisfying answer, even if it might be the only one. So what do you have to say about how we might mitigate these pervasive biases and potentially incorporate those those lessons and those insights into our foreign policy making? Well, it is, it is tricky. Um, and there is no easy way, let me first say, to, to sort of just overcome them. Uh, these predispositions, these biases are, are really deeply embedded in the human mind. You know, studies have found that if, if you talk about overconfidence, for example, to people, their response is to say, that they absolutely accept that everybody else is very overconfident. And they see that all the time in their workplace, among their friends, and they sort of nod, a lot, nod along. But they themselves are not overconfident. They see the world as it really is, right? So uh, it's very challenging to sort of just say to, you know, sit Biden down and just sort of say, okay, these are the biases. He, he will probably accept that they exist. Doesn't mean it would change his thinking um, one iota. So it may be that actually you need to sort of change the structures of decision making a little bit. Perhaps um, we should have a devil's advocate who sits in the in the room, so to speak, the room where it happens, and whose whose job it is to essentially push back against the prevailing narrative and sort of say, could this narrative be the the the, the consequence of some of these biases that we have identified? Might we be overly sensitive to threat? Might we be suffering from loss aversion or focusing too much on negative past events? Um, that might help a little bit. One other thing I would say is that leaders can potentially take advantage of these dynamics. So they're not you know, entirely bad, uh, no pun intended, to focus so much on bad things. So for instance, um, we are all so averse to loss, right? And, and, and uh, when, when, when we face a possible loss, willing to gamble. Well, that can be very dangerous. You know, the, you could escalate a war or something because you fear a small loss, so then you end up in a much bigger loss. But interestingly, it is possible to channel loss aversion in the direction of peace. Think about, say, the Israelis and the Palestinians. If there's going to be a two-state solution, Israel is going to have to make some pretty painful compromises. Why would Israel do that? Why would Israelis support that? And we seem pretty far away from that, I've got to say, at the moment. Well, if they were to be in the domain of loss, if they were to see um, that they are otherwise going to um, you know, change their identity as a Jewish democracy, lose the American alliance, gain global opprobrium or any negative sentiment, that the current path is one of loss. Well, human psychology says that they would then be more willing to gamble. And in this case, gambling might be making some risks to, to, to make peace, um, giving up land, making painful compromises. So the, you know, negative things can, be, can, be, can, can make us do bad things, but they can also be a source of reform. You know, the 
the easiest way in your own life, or one of the ways in your own life, and I don't want this to turn into a, a self-help episode, but one of the things you can do in your own life is, if you want to improve your life, say to yourself, I don't want to be that kind of person, right? And it's actually very powerful to sort of say, I don't want to be that kind of person, because what you're doing there is taking advantage of our sort of aversion to the negativity to sort of springboard into you know changing your life a little bit and maybe countries can can sometimes do that as well dominic tierney thanks for being our guest today it was my pleasure thanks for having me